Man, I was really hoping I could get out of Scripture reading today, because it's a rather interesting passage of Scripture this morning. As we work our way through the, uh, the Minor Prophets chronologically, um, we find ourselves in the book of Hosea this morning. Hosea chapter 1, and I think uh, page number is 703 in the uh, Pew Bible. And I get to read the first 11 verses. Hosea chapter 1. The the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, but by, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand in the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where I said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Prophets, working our way through chronologically, so if you are following along, tracking along uh, with us, we are, as I just read, in in Hosea, and... uh, Hosea has 14 chapters, so you might be wondering if I'm going to preach for an hour and a half this morning. (laughs) I'm going to try and restrain, contain my enthusiasm for this stunning book and all of the content. I cut so much material out of this sermon, it's it's embarrassing, but uh, try to get you out of here uh, for lunch here this morning because, boy, there is so much in this book. Hosea began prophesying, just to set a little context here, um, after Jonah and Amos, just at the tail end of the prosperous reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, he was the prophet who served during the decline of the northern kingdom right before they went into exile. So he got the unenviable task of being the prophet as Israel was seeing its decline and demise um, coming. And like the other prophets, he had a message of imminent judgment for the people. He has a call to repentance, and he has, of course, hope for redemption and restoration. But Hosea takes it a step further, uh, we could say. Hosea doesn't just have a message like Jonah. He has a story, right? One of the most scandalous in all of Scripture. He is told to marry a promiscuous woman because God's people have been cheating on him. Now, the ESV uses the word whore, which is kind of a rather antiquated word, which has connotations of 
prostitution, but nothing in this book actually indicates that she was technically a prostitute. I think that's maybe helpful for us contextually. Uh, Gomer is betrayed, like Israel, as a wealthy, promiscuous woman rather than a poor victim of sex trafficking. And so if you're thinking about this situation, don't be thinking, you know, oh gosh, this poor woman who's been exploited. Um, Part of the metaphor here is that this woman has uh, the wealth that she needs, the independence that she needs, but she's decided to use that independence in very promiscuous ways, uh, modeling God's people Israel. But it's a pretty powerful, uh, even to think about the, the image, the, the metaphor that we're going to be wading into uh, today. So in chapter 1 through 3, Hosea marries Gomer and has at least one child by her. Um, after Jezreel, this first child, things seem to go off uh, the rails as she dives into her promiscuous lifestyle. The uh, second two children, Lo Ruhamah, no mercy, and Lo Amai, not my people. We don't even know who the father is. So this is really kind of, kind of sketchy, right, for Hosea's family situation. And both names, obviously, symbolizing God's judgment and on his people. So, so at some point along the way, Gomer abandons all pretense, moves out to live with her many lovers, and we find ourselves in the story in which we're at Uh, this morning. But really the greatest scandal of all in chapter 3 is that Hosea is instructed to love this woman who's currently shacking up with another man. Not only does he have to go to her and get her from one of her boyfriend's houses, he has to buy her back because apparently she's run up some massive debts chasing all of her lovers. Uh, Hosea is, and Gomer's story, is the Old Testament prodigal son story, except this time it's the prodigal daughter who has run far from God. And we get to unpack this beautiful story this morning and all of its complexity and all of its emotion and all of its passion. And uh, I don't know if I'm up to the task, but it's going to be pretty fun. Where Jonah highlights God's mercy and Amos stresses God's justice, Hosea brings home God's passionate covenant love for his people. If you're looking for the big idea this morning, Um, The message of Hosea is that though God's people cheat on him, his love remains steadfast. He will do whatever it takes to get them back, and he will ultimately restore them to himself. And so this morning, we're going to look at Israel's adultery. We're going to look at God's judgment and love, and we're going to look at Israel's repentance and restoration. And my aim for this morning's sermon is, is that we would see God's passionate covenant love for his people. So uh, let's pray as we dive in uh, this morning. Uh, Father, we've already sung this morning, uh, prone to wander. Uh, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the fold of God, and it's true. Our hearts, apart from your sustaining grace, can be fickle, God. We're prone to wander. We know how easy it is to check out or simply go through the motions, just phone it in with our religious life. And so, uh, God, would you be pursuing our hearts this morning with your, our promiscuous hearts, with your passionate covenant love this morning? And would you come uh, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through this unique passage of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's a quiet morning so far. Some weighty material, right, we're, we're, we're wading into. So let's start on an upbeat with Israel's adultery, right? Let's, let's just start right from out of the gates 
with what's going on in this metaphor. Hosea's marriage to Gomer becomes an unforgettable metaphor for Israel's idolatry, all the ways they have cheated on God. The story, chapter 1 through 3, sets up the message of the next seven or eight chapters uh, that follow it. And so uh, if Israel is the adulteress in this, ca- in this case, most uh, obviously this adultery begins early in their history. Just allow, bear with me for a little context. The northern kingdom right, had from its outset established two golden calves as worship sites so that people would not return to the temple in Jerusalem. And we don't have any representation. We didn't find any of those golden calves in archaeology, but I did give a little picture of an Egyptian um, apis bull, one of the idols that Israel would have seen in Egypt, maybe patterned their golden calf after as they were beginning to think, how do we create substitute gods for the northern kingdom, just politically, so people in the, they don't return to the southern kingdom to return to Jerusalem. So, so Israel has decided to trade in their gods for these two golden calves that they're worshiping in Dan and in Bethel. And these two alternative worship sites became centers of false worship. And Hosea mentions them in chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 13. They come up throughout the book as he is highlighting Israel's spiritual adultery, the way they've turned away from the living God. Uh, These worship sites, as was often the case, right, become a gateway to much broader idolatry. Once they compromise, once they turn from the true and living God, uh, more idols come in. When King Ahab married the Sidonian princess Jezebel, uh, she brought Baal worship with her. So Baal was the preeminent Canaanite fertility god. I think I got a picture of this uh, handsome fellow uh, that we were actually able to pull up. Archaeologists have found numerous statues in Canaan of Baal. He's the Canaanite god of fertility, weather, rain, wind, lightning, war, uh, all of the sailors. Um, this is the guy. And Amos had, of course, denounced uh, the golden calves and Bethel and Dan as idolatry, but Hosea takes it, makes it far more personal. The people haven't just worshipped false gods, they have cheated on the true and living God, right? God was their husband and provided for all of their needs, but Israel wanted more and thought the Canaanite gods could really maximize their lifestyles. And so for Baal, if you're living in an agricultural society where you depend on agriculture for your living, uh, if you live in the land of Canaan, it's a land surrounded by desert. And so there's this one beautiful little fertile place where Israel has found themselves in the land of Canaan, a land watered, you know, with incredible, you know, water from the sky to bring forth incredible crops and wealth and growth. And so for God's people, the temptation was like, yeah, God brought us out of Egypt, you know, he rescued us. But if we're going to thrive in Canaan, if we're going to optimize our lifestyles, we need to worship Baal. He's the one that brings fertility to the soil, uh, brings us numerous children. And so Israel had this grave temptation. And we look at it today, these statues, and we go, what a silly thing. But for people who relied on the land for their very living and sustenance, right, the temptations were alive for them to turn from the true and living God to these false gods. Hosea's conclusion in Chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, is that they don't even know, much less obey the true and living God. So if you're following along with me, we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge 
of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And so what we see here as we start, <laughs> as we embark into the, book of, into the book of Hosea, right? Israel doesn't know her God. This Hebrew word yada will be crucial throughout the book, right? In Hebrew, yada refers to much more than head knowledge. It's intimate relational knowledge, like, like the knowledge a husband has of his wife. And it was saying, Israel, man, they, they have no certain truths about me, and they know certain doctrines or theology, but they don't know me deeply, relationally, passionately, like a husband loves his wife. And that's where we get language, like in Genesis 4.1, that uh, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore, gave birth to Cain. Uh, when we're talking about knowing, right, there's something deep and rich and relational and profound, and Israel doesn't have it. They don't really know their God. Right? They have some abstract knowledge, but they don't recognize God as their creator and as their provider, or they turn to him and be satisfied and receive all that they need. Instead, they're turning to all the Canaanite gods and doing whatever it takes to win the favor of these gods. Right? Instead of cultivating their relationship with the true and living God, they're cultivating these relationships with these false gods of the land, including things like child sacrifice, whatever it takes for them to curry favor with these counterfeit gods. Not only is there widespread idolatry among the people, even the religious leaders who should know better participate. Amos had prophesied a famine of God's word in Amos 8.11, and here in Hosea, it has arrived. So if we uh, look at Hosea 4, 4 through 6, uh, we read this. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest." You shall stumble by day, the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Right? The the prophets are no longer bringing God's word. The priests are criminals. We read in Hosea 6, 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. And so this is the situation in Israel. Not only are God's people as a whole idolatrous, the priests are corrupted. Finally, the political establishment is also indicted as well. The king, the princes, the government officials are all equally compromised. Those tasked with administering justice are actually perpetuating it. And so we read in Hosea 10 to 13, you have plowed iniquity and you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Or in Hosea 5, 1, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. You have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. Or Hosea 5, 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. And so basically we have a situation where the people have given themselves to idolatry. The priests and the religious establishment are equally corrupted. They're in on it as well. And then the political establishment, to make matters worse, are also involved. This is a massive indictment of God's people at all levels. And unlike the southern kingdom, as they're uh, dealing with the threats to national security, instead of seeking God, they're turning to the Assyrians. So we read in Hosea 5.13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah's wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. 
but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. What could be more ironic than Israel's appeal to Assyria as the great king, right? The God who had delivered them from Egypt, you know, had rescued them from slavery. The great God, the creator of heaven and earth, Israel is now turning to Assyria. They've made Assyria the great God. He's the one they're turning to for looking to for rescue and redemption. And so we see a situation, right, in which Israel is at one of its lowest states, and they're right on the brink of going into exile. So this is the basic summary of Israel's idolatry, or adultery, which is unpacked in graphic detail throughout these 14 chapters, right? Idolatry and injustice at all levels of society. Uh, But before we look at God's response, we need to pause here for a moment, I think, and examine our own hearts. Well, we don't have gods and goddesses of fertility and food, uh, love and war, clothing and wine. Uh, We do have our own lifestyle brands, uh, some uh, like Nike, literally named after the gods of the ancient world. And so we have Patagonia and North Face and REI, the gods of adventure and the great outdoors. We have Apple, Windows, and Google, titans of technology. We have Whole Foods elevating our eating experience to religious proportions. We have essential oils offering health and wellness to all of its religious adherents. And while we don't have shrine prostitution, the amount of pornography consumed by our culture would make even the Canaanites blush. And like Israel's religious establishment, the clergy aren't immune to these temptations. You will find pastors and priests worshiping at all of these temples. And the temptation to put our faith in political parties is still very much a live option as evidenced by the extreme partisanship that we see around us today. And so we've got to really reflect here Uh, in our own hearts, do some heart searching. I did put some x-ray questions up here, maybe to help you do some introspection, some reflection. Maybe, uh, uh, what are your idols and false gods? What are the things you look to? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? What do you fear? Uh, What do you tend to worry about? Where do you bank your hope? What sun does your planet revolve around? What must you get to make life seeing, right? These are the kind of questions, right, when we're confronted with our own idolatry, the the things we put our hope and trust in, the things that we make functional gods in our lives. So how will God respond to Israel's adultery, right? How would you respond to this scandalous behavior, right? What we see throughout the book of Hosea is that God's response is one of both judgment and love. He loves his people too much to leave them lost in their idolatry, so he takes drastic measures to get their attention. But these drastic measures aren't the vindictive actions of a distant dictator, but the passionate pursuit of a lover who knows that Israel can never be satisfied by these counterfeit gods. So let's look more closely here at God's judgment and love as it unfolds throughout this book. Right out of the gates, Hosea confronts Israel with their spiritual adultery and warns that judgment is coming through the names of Israel's children, right? Jezreel um, represents the slaughter of the last dynasty in Israel and represents the slaughter that's coming on Israel's religious establishment. No mercy, obviously. Like, man, God is done. There's going to be no more mercy for you. Not my people. God is, he's like, I'm cutting you off. Uh, the sin, the spiritual adultery, the injustice in your culture, like it, it's over between us. 
But by the end of chapter 1 and 2, we already see this message of hope. God's going to take no mercy, and he's going to extend mercy to God's people. Right? He's going to take not my people and welcome them back into his family. What are we to make of this? Right? Is, is, is God schizophrenic here? Wait, at one moment, it's no mercy. The next minute, you know, he's saying, I'm going to welcome you back. I'm going to have mercy on you. This pattern actually continues throughout the book. And if you read through it, it takes about a half an hour to work your way through the narrative. Back and forth we go. Message of terrifying judgment. And then messages of God's tender compassion and love for his people. And as you go through the book of Hosea, it's all building, right? Is God going to totally wipe them out? Or is God going to have incredible mercy upon them despite their sin? And, and so the message builds and builds and builds and builds, and the tension continues to grow uh, until we come to the climax in chapter 11, which gives us a beautiful illustration of it. If you want to flip over to chapter 11, we're going to see a beautiful expression of God as he's reflecting on his adulterous people that have walked away from him. So in the first couple of verses here, one through four, we're going to see God's tender compassion. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went astray. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them out by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and bent down to them and fed them. And so you have this beautiful picture of God as a father, and you just got this little child that, that, that Israel that's being led out of Egypt. God is rescuing from the jaws of the Egyptians, from slavery and death. And God brings them out, this little child, brings them out of Egypt, walks with them, leads them in tender mercy and compassion. And yet Israel abandons God. And so in verse 5, we see the verdict. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all, right? God's people are bent, like their, their hearts are just bent towards evil and wrongdoing and seeking other gods. And you're like, man, you're like, wait a minute, God is the tender, loving God, but he's like, I'm done. I'm done with you people. I'm washing my hands of you. And then, just to make it more interesting in verse 8, it's like God's compassion and mercy kick in again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And so we see these two side by side, like warring emotions in God's heart, right? He sees their sin and, and he's got to judge it, right? He's got to bring punishment to his wayward people. But, but there's this compassion and passion in God. What do we make of this dramatic emotional tension as this book unfolds? Not only does the book of Hosea give us a hard-hitting critique of idolatry, it also helps us understand the nature of idolatry from God's 
perspective. Uh, God didn't tell Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman just to give us a dramatic illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness. God tells him to do it so that he will more deeply understand God's own perspective. Hosea is getting a glimpse into God's own heart, the pain of betrayal and rejection, the depth of God's love. These 14 chapters, perhaps more than anywhere else in the Bible, give us a window into God's inner life. So when we see the terrifying messages of judgment throughout this book, we're not meant to see a cruel and vindictive deity, but rather the passion of a lover willing to do whatever it takes to rescue his beloved from tragedy and certain death. This is a very unique portion of God's word because it gives us a very unique window into the heart of God, his passion for righteousness and justice, right? But also his incredible mercy and, and uh, compassion. And like, none of those things are compressed. None of those things are minimized, right? Those things are maximized in the text. We see God's judgment at its greatest ends. We see God's compassion and love uh, outside the spectrum here. Be off the charts in both categories. So as you're reading this book, don't just read it literally as, uh, here's a list of indictments, here's a list of God's love. You've got to see God's heart as you're reading through it, the passions that he explains to us, the, the weight of sin and rebellion and rejection and the depth of God's love. As we go deeper into this book and as you read through this book, you're going to see some beautiful insights into the heart of our God. And so I think it's worth pausing to ask, what might God be trying to teach us about his heart in this season of your life? As you reflect on where God has you right now, uh, we tend to think life should revolve around us, and right, everything you know, that's happening in our lives should be uh, about us. And yet sometimes God wants to actually give us a window into his heart how he is seeing and reflecting the world. Sometimes God brings confusing circumstances into our lives to give us a window into his heart. Imagine being Hosea, being called to marry a promiscuous woman, and he's like, what's the redemptive end in all this? Like, where, where, where is this all? What's the happy ending in this story of marrying this promiscuous woman? Like, why am I being called to do this? Uh, why am I called to face the scandal and the weight of all of these things? Like Job, kind of in the book of Job, just wondering, God, what are you doing with all this pain and suffering and heartache in my life, this, this deep and agonizing pain of rejection? Like, why am I walking through that? What, am I, what is God trying to teach me through all that? These are the kind of questions Hosea is, is helping us wrestle with, not just kind of, you know, what am I going to eat for uh, lunch today? What, when are the lions playing? <laughs> Deeper questions of God's own heart for us. This week, Jamie was out of town, so I had uh, been loading up uh, the six kids and dropping them off at the Potter's House High School and uh, Middle School. And one morning, after successfully dropping off uh, three of the kids at the high school, and I arrived at the middle school and realized that one of our children forgot to actually put on dress code. And so we both just looked at each other and said, mom would not have forgotten to put the proper clothes on for school, right? I mean, it's just, we just get there. It was just one of those moments where we're just like, wait, wait, you're not even dressed for school. How did you get in the van? How did you get your backpack? You've got your lunch. Like, what is, what, what just happened here? 
And, and you know, we, 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 of course, got in the car, dropped the other kids off, sped home. And, and as I was driving home, you know, typically I'd be very frustrated that I just added another half hour to my already two-hour process of getting all six of these kids to their appropriate places. And yet, as I was reading Hosea, I was just thinking to myself this week, you know, how many times in my life have I showed up to things utterly unprepared, and God has met me with his incredible grace and mercy and compassion in the midst of, if I were not just thinking about how inconvenient this is to my lifestyle, my preparation for preaching this message on Sunday, but if I were thinking about God's heart for his children, his passion for them, how would that change the way I'm thinking about my life? And as I was driving home, having that reflection, it was a beautiful moment beautiful epiphany of our Heavenly Father's patience for us, his compassion, his love for us, the way he meets us in the midst of our confusion, the midst of our unpreparedness, the midst of our our messy lives and emotions. Uh, Hosea just opens for us more of, of God's heart as we walk through life that's often messy, that's often confusing, um, where we are surprised sometimes by our own sinfulness, our own frailty, our own weakness, our own inability to follow God. And yet Hosea unfolds for us in beautiful fashion uh, God's heart for us. And I wish I could read through all of the just beautiful expressions of God. I had a whole list. I mean, I think I had a whole other page of just all the ways God just demonstrates his tender love, his compassion, his mercy throughout this book. And I don't know where you're at, but if you're in confusing circumstances right now, um, God, God sometimes uses those moments just to go deeper into the midst of his love. And so throughout the prophets, uh, we see that both God's judgment and God's love are invitations to repentance and restoration. God pursuing his people's hearts to bring them home. And so I want to look closely here, or quickly in my last point here, at Israel's repentance and restoration, right? right? We see Israel's adultery, right? The way they just turn from God. We see God's beautiful heart to bring both judgment where they need it and also his compassion and mercy. We see those two passions in God's heart, right? And the tension that that brings. But the whole point of the judgment, the whole point of God's mercy is to bring them to a place of repentance and restoration. So let's start with repentance first, right? God threatens severe judgment to get his wayward people's attention. He wants them to return to him with all their hearts. And so in Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. See, that is biblically what is going on in the minor prophets. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he will bind us. That is so counterintuitive to us. That is so mind-boggling to us. But whenever God brings judgment into our lives, whenever God brings pain into our lives, whenever God tears us, whenever God strikes us down, it's always, always, always to heal us, always to bind us up. God brings pain into our lives, right, so that we can grow, so that we can be matured, right? It's time to bring us back to seeking the Lord, to returning to the Lord, to holding fast to the Lord, to trusting him. And while we don't know what happened to Gomer, we do know, with the benefit of hindsight, that Israel tragically refused to repent and did go into exile. It would take a new covenant and a new and better prophet to bring God's people back into 
a relationship with him. So I want to look more closely here at Israel's restoration as it is unfolded for us in this book in incredible, incredible fashion. This is just an overview here. Uh, but the charge stated back in 4.1, repeated throughout the book, is that God's people don't know the Lord. And they're perishing for their lack of knowledge, right? Not only are they not missing out on a relationship with the true and living God, his compassion, his mercy, his love, not only are they missing out on the love that they were made for, man, they are also perishing from that knowledge, right? Their idols are not delivering on the things they thought they were going to deliver on. They, they are finding themselves like Gomer, right? Out of money, bankrupt, you know, stuck with people that are not caring for them and taking care of them at all. And already here in Hosea 2.20, God promises, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And we're wondering, when is that going to happen? The prophet Jeremiah uh, goes further and announces a new covenant where God's people will know him deeply and intimately. And in fact, in this new covenant, we read in Jeremiah 31, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, both Hosea and Jeremiah are pointing forward to a time where God's people in fact, all of God's people, what will make God's people God's people is their intimate relationship with God, their knowledge of his love, his mercy, his compassion. Every person who's a part of the people of God will have this deep personal relationship with the true and living God. That's why it's a new and better covenant, because uh, it's not just an option for everybody who claims the name of God or is born into ethnic Israel. Every person will have this kind of deep and burning relationship, this kind of passion for God. And this new and better covenant would usher in a new era of knowing and experiencing God's covenant love. And that new era begins with the new and better prophet who announced that he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, right? All the messages of judgment in the minor prophets, right, are put on pause. They're, they're put on hold when Jesus comes into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to open up the door of salvation for anyone who wants to enter in, where Hosea could only agonize about Israel's unfaithfulness, attempt very imperfectly to mirror God's love and pay back whatever debts Gomer owed. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He was the friend of sinners. That was his mission. He came for the Gomers of this world, the wayward wives, the prostitutes, the prodigal sons. That's who Jesus came to reach, right? He was God's love in flesh and blood, uh, not just from a distance reaching out, but leaving the comforts of heaven to right step down into the messiness of our lives, right into the confusion, right into the chaos to come and reach into our very lives. And he would pay, of course, a greater price for his bride. George Schwab says it well. God's people put him in a bind. He is torn between two passions, justice and mercy. But the gospel is that this conflict has been resolved on the cross by Jesus, who willingly took the punishment judgment his people earned so that a just God did not have to give them up. Right? The cry of verse 11, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, is answered by Jesus on the cross as he commits his spirit into the Father's hands. And Jesus did not simply pay the penalty for his promiscuous people, he has even greater plans for his bride. 
Well, we don't know anything about Hosea and Gomer's marriage after they're reconciled. We do know that Jesus came to prepare a bride for himself of such radiance and splendor that it will literally take our breath away. Right? Ephesians 5 uh, says it this way. Paul says, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, right? That is where the whole biblical story is going. It begins in the garden with a wedding, and it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. That, that promiscuous bride is ultimately going to be presented before the throne of God in perfect splendor and holiness and righteousness. And not only is God going to perfect his bride, make her beautiful, splendid, sp- splendid, is that the word, and radiant, God's love is even stronger than death. To the question, Hosea 13, 14, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? The answer in Hosea is a resounding no. No, I'm not going to have compassion on my people as we read the text. But the New Testament, we have a resounding yes to this question. As Paul is finishing one of his greatest chapters, 1 Corinthians 15, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He says these words. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death that God's people deserved, man, becomes a boast in Jesus' rescue, Jesus' accomplishment of salvation for his people. So how should Hosea's marriage and message of God's covenant love transform our hearts this week as we uh, live into it? First, we need to consider, do we really know him? That is the burning question in the book of Hosea. Israel thought they knew God. They thought they knew who he was, but and then they moved on to other gods. Like, we've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. You know, you know the God of Israel isn't, isn't doing it for us. So we're going to move on to the Baals, the Asherahs. And they ended up utterly bankrupt with nothing left. Many people here in Grand Rapids are similarly inoculated to the gospel, right? Many people have grown up in the church. They've been there, done that, and have moved on to other things. They're having brunch right now at a local restaurant. They're hanging out at the beach. They're going hiking because they grew up in the church, and you know they went through the motions, and it didn't really do anything. It didn't change their life. When, when you talk about this personal relationship with God that, that approximates the burning intensity and passion of a marriage, right? they're just like, what are you even talking about? Right? That, that level of emotional intensity, that love, that, that personal relationship with God is just an utterly foreign concept to them. And so we have a job to do as a church to, to welcome people into that kind of personal 
relationship, the burning love of God for us in Christ. That is an opportunity for us living in a city of people that have moved on, that have tried the gospel and, or tried what they thought some very shallow version of church life and never got the heart of it, never got the depth of it. Second, if we do know this God, we need to consider where our hearts have wandered this week. Where are we guilty of spiritual adultery? Where have we been looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in, in all the wrong places this week, looking forward in all the, the material pleasures around us and all of the uh, relationships that we have. Finally, we need to remember why Jesus' love is better and return to him with all our hearts, right? We've mentioned a few of the reasons this morning, right? The new covenant promise that God will bring us into that relationship, Jesus' love for sinners, Jesus' death in our place on the cross, Jesus' commitment to make us a beautiful, radiant bride, both gals and guys, you get to be the bride. And Jesus' ultimate defeat of death and sin and hell. So I want to close with a quote from the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon. I think he brings this home beautifully, and I hope this will kind of be something that will be resonating with your heart this week as you're heading on out. But Spurgeon said this, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And you might not think immediately in Hosea of a reflection on the Godhead, but Hosea gives us a beautiful window into the Godhead's deepest sea, into the deepest inner thoughts and emotions of God, into the love of God, his passionate covenant love for his people. Oh, that we would be a church where wayward people could experience God's passionate covenant love, right? Where promiscuous people could come and experience the grace of God, could be pursued, could be won back, could be wooed back into a relationship with him. Let's pray that God might do that here in this church um, because of his great love for us. And so, Father, we thank you for the message of Hosea. We thank you, God, for just the glimpse, just that the tiny glimpse we've got into the heart of God this morning, right? His hatred of sin and the pain and the suffering that it brings, but his incredible compassion, his mercy, his grace for for sinners that are coming home. God, for for the prodigal in all of us, the, the promiscuousness in all of us, God, we have a beautiful invitation to return, to come running home and have the Father wrap his arms around us, welcome us in, throw a party for us, God. And so I pray if there's anybody in this room this morning that, that feels like that promiscuous woman or that prodigal son, God, that this would be an opportunity to come home this morning. And for those of us that have been around the church our whole lives and, you know, we're just going through the motions right now, God, would, would, would Hosea just shake us a little bit this morning with the, the passionate love of our God? Would it stir our hearts afresh? Would we, um, yeah, just feel pursued by 
the love of God. He wants more than just uh, our attendance at church on Sunday. He wants our hearts, God. Would you grab our hearts this morning? Make us uh, lovers like you are, God. Uh, help us see uh, all of those around us, uh, the, those prodigal sons and daughters right now that are running far from you. Would we see them through your eyes and would we reach out to them with your heart, God? And would you bring many home through this church body right here in this city? We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, each week here at Redemption City Church, uh, very appropriately, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to be reminded of the price that was 